Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Hello. Hello. George. Hey, Ingram. Hello. I apologize again. I did not no, think I no would problem. Be you got work that gets in the way. Unfortunately, all too frequently. There you go. There you go. Let's see here. How'd that come out last week? Did we do I okay? It was, it was quite good. Really, really was. Good. There were a couple of parts of it where I took some of the comments of my own out but i thought that was was very enjoyable and, and pretty entertaining to listen to okay good good so you know just tell me tell me give me direction so all right um we'll get you ready to get started sure i'm ready okay again we're joined by uh by the author of serial wars george franklin uh george wanted to kind of pick up where we left off and that was we okay. kind of began to set the the scene where you were first appointed as uh, director of government relations for Kellogg's and and kind of the mounting storm that was occurring uh, around you and exactly everything that uh, the landscape looked like as you first walked into that job um, not the book is is wonderful for many reasons but it's also wonderful just because it continues to take these interesting twists. So it wasn't like this was the uh, only important moment that you found yourself in, but did you necessarily realize at the time that perhaps uh, the biggest event of your career was was going to be the first kind of major, um, the first major kind of thing that you you tangled with? Not not really. Um, You know, let let me just start off by saying that, you know, Kellogg got brought into the government relations arena sort of kicking and screaming. They didn't want to be there. Uh, And let me just editorialize for a second. You know, one of the big problems I see with the government relations function of many companies is the people that are in it, that are in Washington, especially state capitals, they lose sight of what business they're in. I mean, they, they turn into being the government relations business, whereas the company might be, uh, in Kellogg's case, I mean, we're in the cereal business, we're in the food business, and you sort of lose your sight, okay? Um, and it, it's a problem I see occur quite often with Washington offices. They forget what business they're really in and what's paying the bills. Having said that, Kellogg, they didn't want to be in the government relations business, but they woke up one day and all of a sudden found out that, you know, they were in bed with the government and they didn't want to be there. 
Uh, and, you know, here you had this antitrust case, the so-called shared monopoly case, that was going to literally destroy the company. I mean, the remedy in the case was to take the Kellogg company and break it into three separate companies. So this was life and death for Kellogg. Uh, so no, did I, did I realize when I started it, I mean, I had the enthusiasm and the vigor of youth and I could tackle any mountain. Uh, I knew it was huge. I knew it was critical. Did I really think at that point that would be the biggest case I was really involved with in my professional career? Didn't really think about it, to be honest. I just did it. You just went ahead and took it on. Perhaps you didn't realize the uh, the importance, or, or not necessarily that you didn't realize the importance, but you didn't realize that uh, the, the stage or perhaps the results would be as important as they were. Did you realize or at least did you appreciate the type of characters that you were with? You talk about Fred Firth. You talk about some of the other people that you had the chance to work with. Um, did you realize or kind of appreciate them for their eccentricities and just the way that they went about uh, and their own kind of unique personalities? You know, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I sort of did, uh, but my experience wasn't broad enough to realize what a real cast of characters I was working with. Um, you know, he, uh, Fred's one of a kind, you know. He's, a, he's one of the great trial lawyers, antitrust lawyers in the country. And uh, he, was, he was a pirate. He was a buccaneer, you know. He took on the system. Uh, but it was a little bit of that was, was our whole team. I mean, we were taking a very non-traditional approach. It was a company that wasn't part of the club. I mean, there's there's a thing in the in Washington called the uh, the uh, business roundtable, and it was the hundred top CEOs of the country. Well, Kellogg, they, their CEO wasn't in the club, hadn't been invited. I mean, it wasn't part of the East Coast clique. Mm-hmm. So, uh, well, a bunch of us, including you know, sort of me and my age and position, was a little unusual. Having Fred Firth come in to take on uh, the FTC. He had principally been a defense, uh, uh, I'm sorry, a plaintiff's lawyer, and now he's a defense lawyer in antitrust. Um, it was, all of it was non-traditional. It, it, was, it was quite a, but I, did I really understand the, the, uh, the cast of characters I was with? Not really. Um, what I did realize, just because of my Washington life was, I mean, I got thrown into meetings you know, I got called into a meeting one-on-one with Senator Russell Long, who was the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee and, a, you know, part of the historic Long family of Louisiana. Uh, I knew at that time, I was like, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm in the big leagues now. Interesting. Interesting that you would describe or you would remember a particular moment when you, uh, when you associated that. I wanted to ask you about the process that led up to the cover of the Washington Post, at least the Washington Post's business and finance section. Um, And you talk about going to, you approached the writer, Merrill Brown, and uh, I found it particularly interesting that you talked about just kind of the danger, or not so much the danger, but the, the fact that you very much kind of sacrificed control and that once you gave over this, uh, this story or this idea from that point, it was kind of out of your hands, and you had to deal with whatever came down the pipe. Um, 
Did you have any real hesitancy about that? Did you think that that was ultimately going to play out the way that it did? Or what exactly were the, the reasons that you felt as comfortable approaching him as you did? Well, you know, it's a three-legged stool in Washington, and the people on the Hill use the journalists. Uh, the lobbyists use the people on the Hill. The journalists use the lobbyists. The lobbyists use people. The three interplay all the time. And, you know, journalists have sources on the Hill. They have sources that are lobbyists. There used to be a story about former uh, chief of staff, secretary of state, James Baker, that he used to get the greatest press coverage of almost everybody. Well, part of the rumor was the reason he got such great press coverage was he was such a great source. So if you're a great source and you're a journalist writing stories and you need to keep him as a source, well, you don't burn him in the article. You sing his praises, and then the next time you need some more information, your source is probably there. Well, part of me going to the Washington Post is part of that dance. So you you go to the Post, and our intent was to use them. And, of course, they're using us because they want to get a scoop on a story that no one else has. I, in turn, wanted to get the publicity and draw the attention to the case to create uh, interest and controversy over the administrative law judge. The concern comes when you go to a reputable journalist. They know you're using them, and you know they're using you. Mm-hmm. But they're, they're the rules of the game. And the rules of the game when you're dealing with a good journalist is if you launch that missile and they find out there's other aspects or more intrigue or other controversies surrounding you and what you did and your side of the story – it's all fair game. And so when you go in there, uh, they're going to disclose it all, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And so you go in there, you're obviously pretty nervous. I mean, we thought we were, we had clean hands, which we did. Uh, we were bringing their attention to a thing, to a, you know, a situation that was unprecedented. You know, a, a judge being bought by the agency he worked for. But you're always a little nervous. Um, and in fact, in the story, they did burn us a little bit, and I think I mentioned it. He mentioned there was a line in there, and in fact, Marilyn and I laughed afterwards. I called him the week after the story, and he said, well, what do you think? And I said, it, it was a great story, and I said it was pretty accurate. And he said, what do you mean pretty? And I said, well, you had one in line there that we were guilty of the best and the worst of lobbying. <laughs> And what he was referring to, and it was nothing significant, but was, you know, you go into a Hill office and you ask them to write a letter, and they say, well, why don't you draw, give me a draft? And that's code for, will you write me the letter? Mm -hmm. So you give them a, quote, draft. Well, what happened was numerous offices used almost identical languages based on our same draft. And Merrill had noticed that. And, you know, there's nothing illegal, nothing wrong, nothing sinister about it. But it was just a little aspect of it caught that all these same Senate House offices sort of magically had the same language. Well, he knew why they did because we'd written it and given it to him. 
it's uh, not that being in the Washington Post or the New York Times is not a significant and still today one of the nations and really the world's more respected publications, but if you could, particularly for the younger listeners, describe exactly how much weight something like that carried to be on the cover of, of even a section uh, for a, a Sunday publication like that with, uh, with either the Post, or the New York Times, or the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, I mean, it, it's the, it, there's the three main sources of information. You're talking pre-Internet. Um, nowadays, you'd throw in the, the Huffington Post and Politico, and mm-hmm. uh, there used to be some other sort of more modern uh, mediums, if you would. But back then, uh, you know, the, the public debate, the discourse, public policy issues revolved around what the media reported and the three main media outlets in the political world were the Washington Post, the New York Times, and the Wall Street Journal. And if uh, if you were in one of those, you were an issue of discussion. And that's what we were trying to do. And uh, every Hill office, every government agency, uh, every lobby office, every you know group of journalists, they all read those three papers and that's where you became a topic. And if you were in them, you became, quote, real. Certainly. Um, yeah, interesting that you would list somewhat of the modern uh, the modern equivalent to it, whether it be a, a Huffington Post or uh, Drudge Report isn't certainly a publication. Drudge it's Report, such an yeah. important avenue of news that uh, any time you're, you're in something like that, it, it takes such a different – different meaning than uh, than where you might otherwise be posted or where the story might otherwise be covered. Um, just to end kind of our conversation regarding the uh, the kind of, um, excuse me, the monopolies, the shared monopolies, yep. uh, ultimately this ends by what you describe as, as using the nuclear option and, and you're able to attack and, and really cut off funding in general. Uh, was there a huge risk in doing this? Obviously, that's kind of the boldest move that you can make, particularly in a place like Washington, D.C., but what were the fallbacks if, if that wasn't ultimately successful? Well, I mean, the fallback as a practical matter, the negatives for us were pretty minimal. I mean, given that the remedy of the case was to destroy the company, um, <laughs> the worst that could happen, which did happen, was there were journalist attacks on Kellogg and the other companies and the and the approach taken that you know companies shouldn't be using a political effort to end a you know a judicial matter if you would uh, that it was unprecedented that um, you know you would cut the funds off on an ongoing antitrust case that had as best my recollection had never happened before and it was the subject of negative press articles but to be honest we didn't really give a damn i mean you know it ended the case uh and so the 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 possible negative repercussions to us were minimal considering the positive aspects and the possible you know positive outcome of actually ending the whole damn case which is what it did so it was it was an easy trade-off you you write about the kind of analogous story of Thomas Jefferson and George Washington talking about uh, cooling their coffee uh, yeah. before drinking it, and with the same way that legislation is uh, 
is kind of put into the brass that is the uh, senatorial chamber to um, perhaps make it a little bit more moderate or uh, bring it down to room temperature, so to say. Um, You you seem to very much kind of uh, acknowledge both the flaws in in the government and the unique situation where you have such a push-pull from so many different sides. Um, And then you also write about a situation where – where for the women's and infant children program, you're you're battling for shelf space based on uh, whether or not raisins appear in the cereal. Uh, is it is it just kind of part of the process and part of something that will exist for as long as we have a government uh, that's designed the way it is that you'll also have um, you'll also have lobbying involved and in, and kind of create situations where quote-unquote, everyday America kind of scratches their head and, and wonders exactly what's going on. Yeah, well, you know, there's this misconception, Ingram, that, you know, business lobbyists are fighting labor unions and consumer groups and, you know, Lord knows whether it's, you know, environmental groups and so on. The reality is business groups are fighting business groups over the economic pie. Mm-hmm. That's That's what... 90% of what you do in Washington is as a business lobby. You're fighting other businesses for the piece of the economic pie. And the current debate going on right now over the Export-Import Bank is the classic example. You know, part of my presentations I make around the country is I have a, one of the slides I put up. I say, I have absolutely no idea what the word pro-business means. I was a Kellogg lobbyist for almost 30 years, 25 years full-time and five years a client, and I have no idea what the words pro-business means. And let me give you a couple examples. If there are regulations put on power companies that considerably restrict the amount of air emissions that can come out of their smokestacks, the power companies are going to scream bloody murder, this is anti-business, we're going to have to raise the rates, it's going to be you know, expensive for everybody, and this is an anti-business activity, which it is to them. If, on the other hand, you make wind turbines in Muskegon, Michigan, it's pro-business. If you're in the wind turbine business, that's a pro-business regulation, and you're going to be there lobbying in favor of it. And the classic, as I just referred to a minute ago, is the Export-Import Bank. The Export-Import Bank for simplified way, lends money to foreign companies, cheap money, so they can buy American products. Well, if you're Boeing and you're selling jet airplanes to Air Lingus, Air Lingus or Air Emirates or Air France, the Export-Import Bank is pro-business because it builds your business by giving cheap money they can buy your airplanes. If you're Delta Airlines, It's anti-business. Delta doesn't want their competitors getting cheap money so they can buy planes to compete with them on the same routes they fly. So you got Delta Airlines, which is pretty big business, and Boeing, which is a pretty big business, on opposite sides of the Export-Import Bank. And you've got the Republican Party split down the middle over the Export-Import Bank. And it's one of the more... um, glaring examples of what I try to talk about all the time. It's business versus business. 
And the reason, part of the reason I bring up the case where we were fighting General Mills, and they whooped us every time, by the way. I got whooped every time. Uh, we weren't fighting for truth, justice, in the American way. We were fighting for a piece of a hundreds of millions of dollars worth of cereal sales in a program called WIC. And it was Kellogg versus Mills. And that's, that's what most of your activity is as a business lobbyist, fighting for a piece of that economic pie. The other thing you kind of referred to is, you know, the, the cooling of the Senate and the hot water from the House. Um, you know, people that go to Washington and say, you know, why don't they just do what's right? It's just do what's right. Just go there and do it. Well, you've taken 535 people. And back to presentations I make around the country, I take a slide and I break down the religious backgrounds of those 535 people, 100 in the Senate, 435 in the House. Well, you've got Christians, Baptists, Hindus, Jews, Muslims, Unitarian, Universalists, non-religious people. Well, you can't get the Chamber of Commerce in Atlanta, Georgia to agree on everything, much less taking 535 people from these incredibly different walks of life. And I always like to tell people, what does a cowboy from Montana have in common with a Hispanic from Harlem? Nothing. They're totally different backgrounds, lives, frames of references. Yet you put them all under this dome in Washington and expect them to agree. Well, the only way anything comes out is compromise. And the reason people dislike Congress so much is because it works exactly as it was designed to do. And it was designed to come out in the middle. And you take the House members who are elected two years and are sort of more knee-jerk responsive to these smaller districts. An average congressman represents about 700,000 people. So they have two-year cycles, and their system is built on being reactive, aiming, I mean, shooting a little bit before you aim, quicker on the draw, you know, uh, a, a little bit more concentrated in their thinking just when the size of their districts. And sending that over to the Senate where they're elected every six years and represent, except in a couple of states, millions of people, uh, it's designed to come out in the middle. And that's the process. But that's what gets people frustrated because you sit at home in Chicago, Illinois, and you say, well, it's simple. That's the right way to do it. Just go do it. That's what's right. They all want to talk like Ross Perot, right? Just do it. Right. That's it. It ain't that simple. Very well said. Very well uh, described. And I enjoyed that uh, particular part of the book as well when you talked about that um, and how different and unique uh, the representation is from throughout the country. And it is very much designed to uh, to not operate necessarily in a, a super effective manner just because of the clash of ideas and clash of backgrounds and clash of personalities that exist and are very much kind of designed to, to be that way. Um, the, as we get into kind of chapter six, and we'll we'll take a, a stop here, um, I want to get a little bit of your point of view and your perspective as to 
what you really saw and what you were, I guess, what your thoughts were as you saw Kellogg play uh, a fairly important role in the Sullivan Cole, excuse me, the Sullivan Code, named after Leon Sullivan, right. uh, Reverend from Pennsylvania, and uh, how influential Kellogg ended up being in the uh, the apartheid process and that kind of un unraw un excuse me, I'm just getting my tongue tucked. I'm just going to pause for a second, George, so that I can sure. edit all that out, and it'll be that yeah, yeah. clear. And just the process that Kellogg played in uh, apartheid and the government that existed in South Africa at the time. Yeah, it, it's it's a part of my career that was absolutely fascinating, something I never really thought I'd ever get into. But it also um, says a lot about integrity and courage in an aspect of corporate life that corporations don't get much credit for, but they often do more than many people think. And, you know, I'm the first one to say, you know, corporations ain't a bunch of Boy Scouts. I mean, you got Enron and Tyco and, you know, now you got Volkswagen, okay? All right. But what you don't know about, hear about, and feel sometimes is sort of the courage and the things companies do that aren't readily apparent, but but they have a culture and an integrity and an ethic that makes them do it. And what I'm talking about is many of our listeners won't realize it, and for, for periods of time uh, up until the release of Nelson Mandela, the system of apartheid existed in South Africa, and we would call it segregation. And apartheid is the Afrikaner word for apart. And it was an entire system built on race. White people got all the jobs and money. Black people did all the dirty work. Uh, and we had no political rights, no civil rights, uh, no rights of any kind. Okay. It was an abhorrent, evil system. Kellogg, like most, like hundreds of other American companies, right after World War II, built factories or established operations in South Africa as sort of their beachhead for the African continent. So since it was in 1948, Kellogg built a factory. They made cornflakes and Rice Krispies and all the things we're familiar with. Well, the, the apartheid uh, system was in effect, and the evilness of it was being recognized by the world. And there was a move in Congress that all American companies should divest of their operations in South Africa. Otherwise, other words, leave. One of the leaders in Congress of the move to have companies divest was a congressman from Battle Creek, Michigan. His name was Howard Wolpe. And he chaired the Africa Subcommittee, which gave him quite a, quite a pedestal from which to you know, lead the charge. Well, Kellogg, under the leadership of a CEO fellow named Bill Lamoth, he was hell-bent that we were not going to leave South Africa. And it was not because we made a lot of money. It was one-half of 1% 1 of the company's revenue. It meant mm -hmm. nothing. But he felt strongly that we could make a difference, we could make a change, Kellogg could be could be part of dismantling apartheid 
by being there and acting in a way, as he used to put, like we do in Omaha, Nebraska. Well, Kellogg, being the largest private employer in Congressman Howard Wolpe's district, was not lost on the South African government. And they were very sensitive to us and what we wanted to do because the last thing they wanted us to do was leave because we were this thorn in the side of Congressman Howard Wolpe being the big employer in his district. Well, we went ahead and recognized the black trade union, even though recognizing black trade unions was illegal. We just basically, Bill LeBeau said, do something about it. Well, they did. They just ignored it. But Christopher Lamini, our, the black labor leader of the union in the factory, was also um, an active member of the African National Congress, which meant he was a terrorist to the South African government. Ends up getting and, kidnapped, doesn't he? Yeah, and what happens was we knew – this is in a time also when people like he, black leaders, would be arrested, and then that night magically they fell out of windows in the prison or were found hung the next morning or uh, mysteriously died, and uh, it was part of, part of the routine there. Well, our nightmare came true. Then one day I got a call from our plant manager in Springs, South Africa. I'm in Washington. And he says, they have taken Christopher away. State police have taken him away. And, you know, I'm very worried we may never see Christopher again. So I called Bill Lamoth, our CEO at his home in Battle Creek, and said they've taken Christopher. He said, okay. He said, I want you to get a message to President Boda, president of South Africa, was a fellow named P.W. Boda. His nickname was the Great Crocodile. A very strong nickname. Very strong. Big, tough Afrikaner. But he tells me, he says, I want you to get a message to President Boda that if Christopher is not released unharmed immediately, I'm going out the door and holding a press conference. We are leaving South Africa. And Ingram, I'm like, whoa. And I remember saying to him, I said, do, do you really want me to do that? He said, absolutely. Okay. So I had met and been involved a little bit over at the South African Embassy uh, just because of our activities surrounding South Africa. So I called the ambassador's office you know, the first thing in the morning, and I said, uh, I'm calling on behalf of Mr. Lamoth Kellogg, and would you get a message to President Boda? Have the ambassador please pass this message along that if Christopher is not released, released unharmed, he's going out and hold a press conference. We're leaving South Africa. Well, the next day, President Boda called Mr. Lamoth in Battle Creek and assured him that Christopher would be released and released unharmed, which he was. And a couple months later, I was in Spring, South Africa with Christopher, and he said, you know, I'd, I'd be dead unless y'all had intervened because, you know, I just, that's what would have happened. Well, on a more positive note, though, uh, Mandela's released. Uh, democracy, real democracy comes to South Africa. Christopher becomes a member of parliament. So he'd gone from making cornflakes on the factory line to becomes a member of parliament. And then about four or five years later, I'm with some Kellogg guys in Beijing, Mm-hmm. This is and an I incredible said, story. Yeah. I said, I said, you fellas want to have some fun? They said, yeah. I said, uh, let's go see the ambassador from South Africa. 
They looked at me like, Frank, what the hell are you talking about? I said, I guarantee you, he'll see us. Well, you know the end of the story. It was Christopher. So Christopher had actually become the ambassador to China from South Africa. And it's a wonderful story because it it's it's one of those you never read about in the paper. You never would have known this. Uh, Kellogg all this time was being disparaged by consumer groups and activists for being in South Africa and staying and and you know being quote part of the system, while unbeknownst to them, they had literally saved a black labor a black labor leader's life, and I think really did help change you know the whole dismantling of apartheid. So. Once again, it was a it's a corporate story that, you know, may be unusual but uh needs to be told and people realize that corporations aren't all bad and they do some wonderful things. Certainly. Well I think that's a good uh, a good stopping point. George, that is a just one of the one of the great moments of the book and certainly something I enjoyed reading about as much as anything and that's uh it's such a kind of a story of transformation and what uh, transformation of a individual and the opportunities he had, but also so kind of symbolic for for what South Africa went through, and uh, really one of the more interesting and uh, kind of uplifting passages that's uh, that's included. Well, you know, I have to end it end it with a little off color line. My old boss on Capitol Hill used to he always used to love the phrase. He said, "Nervous as a whore in church." And the day I called that embassy, I want to guarantee you, I was nervous as a whore in church. <laughs> Well, it's a it's a great story and a, a story that, uh, like I said, kind of is so symbolic for what South Africa went through, but also just the uh, uh, kind of backbone that uh, Lamothe and, and Kellogg had and, and how influential uh, the company was in the whole process. And you're right. I think we can get very um, just very kind of skeptical sure. as to corporate motivations, and perhaps at times we should. And uh, but that is uh, that is just a great example of, of kind of change uh, via via corporate interest and, and a corporation very much wanting to do the right thing. Yeah, it was a, it was a terrific episode. It was it was you know a, a wonderful corporate story with a wonderful outcome. All right, well, uh, George, I appreciate it. Well, I'll, I'll cut it off here and and uh, well, go back and clean up some of that other part. But uh, I think we that can, went real uh, well. Shoot for next Wednesday. Fantastic. That would be great. Perfect. This is good stuff, Ingram. Thank you. I appreciate your time. Thank you, sir. Thank you, too. Bye-bye.
Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.